0: Welcome to episode 61 of FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, back home here in our Washington office with my colleague Conan French, who's just returned from the G20 in Riyadh. Conan is going to share some of the top takeaways from Riyadh, and we'll then look forward to what we might see from the global official sector over the coming months. It is a somewhat unusual time with the IMF and World Bank having announced that their Spring meetings in April are moving to a virtual format in light of the coronavirus situation. But even in that revised format, the IMF at Spring remains a milestone on the official calendar and we'll talk about that and the mobilisation of the BIS's innovation hubs also. But Conan, let's start with that recent G20. The Finance Ministers met in Riyadh and we held the IAF's G20 conference in partnership with that. What were the standout issues at Riyadh?
1: Well, I think as your intro intimates, the coronavirus really swamped the official agenda in a lot of different ways. Looking back 10 days ago, the equity markets hadn't really reacted to the coronavirus. Over the course of the three days of meetings in the IF and the official sector, I think you saw the pivot of this story from really being about China to becoming a global story and the official sector realizing that they would be you know, on the hook to react. So you saw some comments, for instance, from the IF chairman, Axel Weber, who said that uh, markets, you know, he thought in his view, equity markets were underpricing the risk that the coronavirus posed. Um, You saw that there would be from the official sector recognition that they would be looking for a fiscal response and trying to provide businesses with relief and, and funding and monetary measures as well to try and combat and deal with this virus. So I think it was really the, the main overarching story was a pivot there. Of course, you had underneath that the continuing topics uh, that the G20 presidency is bringing forward on things like LIBOR, too big to fail, quality infrastructure, domestic capital, sustainable finance, and then also a very significant focus on new technology topics, payments, reg tech, soup tech, and the impact of big tech in the economy.
0: So, Conan, let's drill in a little further there in particular on the communique. And as you mentioned, there was quite a big emphasis on technology including such areas as the role of big tech firms, reg tech, the work with financial crime and cyber threats. In terms of how those have manifested into the final communique, what really stands out there?
1: Well, I think the communicate when you look at um, flip to the back and look at the action items, I think a few things really stood out. The G20 asked the FSB to work with the CPMI and create an entire roadmap of how they could really enhance the global cross-border payments arrangements. That'll be due this uh, October 2020, and we'll be staying connected with that. At the same time, they also asked the FSB to deliver a follow-up on their report of big tech and finance, but this time really look at the impact on emerging markets and developing economies, and they asked for that to be submitted in. July. Um, the FSB will also be looking at uh, a report on how supervisors and regulators can use these new technologies to make uh, supervision and regulation uh, more efficient and effective. So you'll see a strong work stream on RegTech and suptech, And I think, you know, watch that space. There'll probably be some uh, new announcements of how these things will fit together with the uh, BIS innovation work stream. But that FSB report on RegTech and SoupTech will also be due uh, July this year. And then there's a digital infrastructure use case library that they've tasked the industry to come together and and work on, and that will be uh, delivered this spring as well. Those four work items, I think, really crystallize when you read the communique, the focus on how new technology is shaping the landscape. One item that wasn't there, um, but which we saw very strongly in the U.S. G7 presidency will be data policy. So I know that we had uh, shared some thoughts under Secretary McIntosh's speech in Singapore, which really laid out in the agreement that laid out there, I think, a template for how they'd like the G7 to look at that issue. So that was one key global issue that wasn't in the G20 work stream, but we see in the G7 work stream under the U.S. presidency.
0: That reference to Under Secretary McIntosh and the, the topic of localisation or, or data flows across borders is probably a good segue then to one other item in the IAF program at RIA. You convened our roundtable on data in financial services, fostering discussion amongst banks, technology companies and officials, both on the ethical use of data, but also on that topic of localization restrictions, particularly in respect of of cross-border data flows. We need to emphasise that that roundtable was under the Chatham House rule, and so I know you need to be a little circumspect and not attribute any of the insightful remarks, but could I ask you to share a couple of the notable insights that emerged from that discussion?
1: Yeah, I think that the ethical use of data, this is an area where there has been a lot of practice in the financial sector that may not be really codified. Um, but when we look at how society has all of a sudden woken up to privacy issues uh, and issues of appropriate stewardship of data, you know, the financial services industry has been doing a very good and careful job of this work for at least the last half century. And so I think that the first section that we had here was a conversation about how we uh, very carefully safeguard and and use and manage our customers data and how this could maybe become a bit of a you know starting point or or information case for the broader G20 conversation about how data should be managed and, and flow in an economy. I think the fact that we were having this conversation in the MENA region also, you know, uh influenced the flow. And so we had a very global gathering around our table, but it was interesting to see some of the differences um, across the different regions where you had some regions approaching questions of privacy and data, free flow of data with slightly different uh, lenses than, than other regions. And so I think that was another theme that came forward is that at the end of the day, a lot of things boiled down to a couple of questions about uh, privacy standards and trust standards. And it was interesting to see the differences and perspectives across different regions on those two bedrock issues that then transmitted up into the ethical use of data or the flow of data.
0: And I think on the flow of data, uh, you had an observation about the point at which the flow of, of data perhaps surpassed the flow of goods. 2014 was that right?
1: Yeah, that's that's right, uh, and that actually, it, it, I was surprised to see that a number of people in the audience uh, that caught them by surprise. Um, so when we talk about data being a critical new resource in the economy, that really underscores how important getting data policy right is for the future of economic growth and broad-based growth and, and financial intermediation. And that's you know a place where we have seen the EU move forward in the past couple of weeks uh, with uh, their framework for uh, management of data. We mentioned uh, the U.S. Uh, G7 outline on that topic, and I think that that question will be with us for um, quite a long time. One of the other things that we sort of emphasized here is that you know data is not the new oil in a lot of ways because it's uh, an inexhaustible resource. You can use the same data element over and over and over again, and it can also drive different value for different users in different circumstances. And so the other thing that I think is important for this public-private discussion is really a better understanding of the economics of data, because when we look at some of the things that are driving national data policy and and some attempts at localization, you know, there's some misperceptions about what data is and and how it drives value for individuals, for society, and for financial institutions. And really getting that uh, context right, I think, is another good base uh, layer that we're we're working on at the IF and in this public dialogue.
0: It's a good point, and it resonates with the discussion that we had on FRT around about 12 months ago in Atlanta uh, with JC Perenias of Mizuho, who's led a lot of the, the APEC data ecosystem work, and, uh, and also with Bob Trojan. One final thing from Riyadh that I want to pick up on, and this bit was on the public agenda, was the, the future of money discussion that you moderated with Umar Farouk of JP Morgan and Yasmin Al-Sharaf of the Central Bank of Bahrain. What were some of the notable takeaways from that discussion, both on central bank and private sector initiatives?
1: Well, we wanted to give the audience uh, really an update on hotspots of development. There has been a lot of changes in the space in the last couple of months. I think we've uh, maybe alluded to the Libra proposal from Facebook in the past and how that's really shaped the public sector perception and commercial bank reaction um, to uh, the future of payments. So for this session, we I think some of the main takeaways were the range of different technologies and design considerations. So under that one banner of either you know digital currency or central bank CBDC, which is central bank digital currency. And under that single banner, we really wanted the audience to understand that there's a, a very wide range of different designs, whether you're talking whole wholesale, retail, distributed ledger based, central ledger based, uh, a range of technologies and different tokenization approaches. And so tried to give the audience a little bit of a preview of the complexity of the landscape and the very serious implications that different design considerations would make either from a central bank instrument or from a commercial bank instrument. So that was, I think, one of the main themes was there are a lot of details here and it's an important time for the world to dive in and better understand those details. And we also you know, observe the BIS setting up their innovation hubs and innovation networks. We see the, the, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, quarterly this month, published just the other day, really focusing, it was to have been exclusively on payments. Uh, of course, coronavirus uh, has come in as another topic as well. But that question of what's the new functionality that these technologies enable. So how do you bring together data and money rails, united automation? JP Morgan talked about there, you know, how this could automate escrow, you know, going forward with the wholesale instrument that they've created. The uh, Central Bank of Bahrain shared the study process that they have underway and how they're looking at peer-to-peer and wallet-to-wallet applications um, using distributed ledger technology and some of the transparency and compliance elements that they're trying to build in. So I think the takeaway was, you know, lots of details. These details have big implications and it's an important time for the commercial and and central banks of the world to um, be working together.
0: So lastly, continuing with your travels, but moving away from Riyadh specifically, you just referred a moment ago there to the BIS Innovation Hubs. On your travels, you also spent a day in Bale at the BIS and the FSB and the, the BAL Committee, uh, who were all very generous with their times, which we, we greatly appreciate. Respecting their confidentialities, obviously, uh, but were there any particular standout takeaways that you're at liberty to share with our listeners?
1: Well, first of all, I think just underscoring the pivot to these technology topics, uh, I think they've published seven papers in the last month or two on these topics. They're standing up the innovation hubs uh, around the world and also in Basel. I guess Carsons has said that the central banks of the world really need to keep pace and play an active role in understanding you know the future of money and the future of uh, financial intermediation and the payment systems that they oversee and manage. You know one takeaway is just that there is a big shift and a focus underway that we've seen, you know, growing and escalating over the past couple of years. And now they've got a lot of the structures in place. The other is, I think, the interplay when you see the capacity that BIS is building, the to-do list that the G20 would like the FSB to tackle. And the innovation in some markets like Singapore, the UK, the US, um, and some other hubs where you've seen the regulatory and supervisory entities try and come up with new ways to be an active partner of advancing this development and technology. So that was my uh, theme from the ball committee is that they'll be deeply engaged in this work stream spinning out of the G20 agenda and also you know, looking at the future of payments, how they deal with and intersect with proposals like the Libra proposal going forward and what the landscape for the future of central bank money looks like.
0: Very substantial piece that they wrote in the, the Bale quarterly review just published a couple of days ago, which, uh, which we're continuing to work through at the moment. Let's pivot from those past events to upcoming ones. Uh, And obviously, the IMF World Bank Spring meetings are scheduled just over a month from now, but we've just seen the announcement that those are moving to a virtual format this year in light of the the coronavirus incident, as I mentioned at the outset. Nevertheless, I do think that's an important milestone on the calendar, um, whatever format those meetings end up taking and the the supporting events around them. I mention it for a particular reason in that Libra may may again be in the headlines. We understand that the Libra Consortium is looking to relaunch their white paper and in particular that there would be two major areas that they would be revisiting. One being around the the structure of the, the coins or instruments that they issue, that perhaps instead of having one singular global Libra that would be reserved by a basket of major currencies, that there may be a, n- a number of different Libras, that there may be a US dollar Libra and a Euro Libra and a Yen Libra, uh, each of which would be reserved possibly one-to-one against their respective fiat's. And that there might be some other global or emerging markets, perhaps Libra, that would be something that would be perhaps a bit of a, whether it's a catch-all or a, a broader uh, reach across uh, other other areas. And then the second piece I understand that they're revisiting is about, about AML. Um, and I must admit, I'm quite scant on specifics as to how they would be addressing this. But it was a standout issue, I thought, in the original uh, Libra white paper, that they were really having a reliance on the on and off ramps to do the AML responsibilities, KYC responsibilities for them. And I always thought there was a major disconnect between the the cost of doing that KYC versus where the revenue in the Libra arrangements might sit. I didn't think it was a very uh, well-thought-out approach in terms of the economics of KYC. So I understand that they're planning to address KYC and and AML, and, and we'll watch with interest as to how closely it aligns to the the problems that I saw in the the original paper. You know, Conan, as we look ahead to the spring meetings or, or spring webinars or whatever they might be, you know, that's probably the piece that I'm finding most topical or interesting in the lead up.
1: Yeah, I think that actions by central banks you know, the coronavirus, as we mentioned, has sort of swamped uh, a lot of agendas. But I think that you'll see the PBOC's planned release of their digital instrument uh, moving forward in the not too distant future. You see a number of other uh, central banks sort of poised to move. Christine Lagarde at the ECB, I think, has been encouraging that organization to lean a little uh, more forward than they may have been in the past And looking at this. So I think as we go into the spring, the you know work uh, continues in the central banks and, and international bodies. Around the world, looking at this question of what's the functionality of next generation money and what does that mean for the structure, roles, and responsibilities in payment systems, both at a national level and a transnational level. And so, I think that that uptick of focus will just increase. And as we mentioned, uh, Karsten's call to uh, the central banks of the world to really step up and increase their work, uh, supported by the BIS and their initiatives, I think will be a big story in the next two quarters.
0: We've touched a little bit on the, the practical or the, uh, the operational impacts of the coronavirus situation. Let's just conclude with a, a quick discussion around some of the perhaps more strategic consequences that it may have. It's already, I think, the, the big topic of, of 2020. If I think of it in terms of some of the the major digital finance issues that we focus on, and I'm really just spitballing here as to, to a few questions that may arise. But I wonder if, as we see uh, more companies operating in in unusual circumstances, various offices shut down, people working from home and the like, whether perhaps the role of cloud in enabling remote data access and storage and, and in mitigating risk may become more demonstrable in that, that environment. Whether that throws up implications for some of the cross-border uh, data uh, issues that we touched on earlier. I wonder what it means about the value of different payments methods in terms of when we have a societal dislocation or shutdown in some places, the ability to, to be able to transact in, in different channels. Also wonder what it means in terms of, of the value that citizens place on on payments privacy and perhaps on data ethics. Uh, it's been, I think, a topical case we've already seen where the Chinese government has been using payments data to track which of the citizens have bought flu medicine. And I guess there's questions as to you know, how that's actually applied and what the downstream actions are. But I wonder whether that's going to have repercussions elsewhere in the world for the value that people put on on payments privacy. And I guess, you know, it's an interesting thought as to what it means for the, f- the future of digital currencies. China, obviously, as you just mentioned, Conan, being the, the leader in perhaps setting the, the agenda in the central bank digital currency space, what the disruption in China has or has not meant for the PBOC's developments. And I guess also there's, there's a view in some quarters, uh, certainly the crypto evangelists on social media have been very active in promoting that the demise of central bank balance sheets may trigger a greater shift, into, to other, other savings, shift of savings into other instruments. So those are, I guess, just some of the considerations um, I guess we're starting to get our heads around and just interested in any reactions you have on any of those.
1: I think that this event will continue to show um, sort of two things, the interconnectedness of the world and the interest in sort of resilient distributed systems. And I think that when we look at those topics that you mentioned, whether it's you know cloud computing for more effective and, and better connections, or the future of digital identity and getting digital identity and privacy sort of right so that you can have some of the benefits, but again, maybe you know maintaining a mutualized risk, and maintaining personal privacy in an era when there's public health response requirement. These are all interesting tensions and they've gone, I think, from sort of academic debate to a very real question in in real time in in the global economy.
0: Very much so. Thanks, Conan. We're in very interesting times, a lot of prevailing external uncertainties, uh, but through that, we'll continue monitoring the data policy, cloud and digital currency issues, and in particular, with the different design considerations of potential CBDCs that you mentioned. Some big things expected, also, as you mentioned, with the BIS Innovation Hubs, the FSB work on big tech, just to name a couple. Looking further ahead on FRT, we're going to talk digital identity with our colleague Amin Kerry our soon-to-no-longer-be colleague. Amin's been on secondment with us here at the IAF for the last two years and is in the process now of returning to the Commercial and International Bank of Egypt. But he's led our digital identity work stream, uh, including the publication this week of the third and final paper in our three-part series, looking at some of the commercial opportunities with digital ID. And we'll also be joined by Rob Morgan of the American Bankers Association. Rob's going to talk about some of the investments that the ABA has made in particular to help some of the smaller US banks to access new innovations for their businesses. Please join us again then. This is Brad Carr and Conan French signing out for FRT.